Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks. In today's episode, we're talking about non-native crayfish and how potentially, or even if we can, deal with them and potentially eradicate them and all the problems that they cause because they are, quite frankly, little fuckers. But first, let's plug buymeacoffee.com. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that the only way that I make money from this podcast is buymeacoffee.com. You can go to the link below and you can donate money towards the podcast. I'm a one-man band, so any money that you can donate, it's nearly Christmas, feel generous, get the coppers out of your wallet, chuck some money my way and help this wagon keep on rolling. Whether it's only a couple of quid, whatever you can spare, call it a Christmas present for the podcast if you've enjoyed a few episodes. What we're trying to do is raise money for a new microphone. I think we're about 79% of the way at the moment. And if you can donate towards that, that would be fabulous. If you leave a message, we'll also read it out in the following podcast. If you want to write a little message, if you're enjoying the podcast, bung that in there and I'll read you out in the following week's podcast. Now, back to this week's episode. Well, today I'm talking about signal crayfish. And originally, this podcast was going to be solely about predation on angling because it's a topic that I've been wanting to cover for a while but have wanted to kind of gather enough papers and evidence to back it because it's an incredibly hot topic shall we say among the angling community and uh, bird watching community and then I quickly realized that it just snowballed and there's so much to talk about so I've split it up so today I'm going to be solely covering signal crayfish non-native crayfish and at a later date I will cover bird predation and otters and we'll have a good old chat about that and no doubt cause some controversy when that comes out. But today we're sticking with crayfish as I feel like most people, most sensible people, can agree that signal crayfish are a bad thing. So in today's podcast, what I'm going to go through are some of the stats and facts with signal crayfish, what harm they do to our rivers, to the ecosystems, what causes crayfish plague, how did they get here in the first place, where you're likely to find them, and most importantly, what are the chances of actually getting rid of these buggers? Because they are the terminators of the natural world. They just keep coming back, and they're bloody hard to eradicate. Or are they? We'll find out as we go through the podcast. So signal crayfish, they get up to 8 inches in length, so they are a chunky old crustacean, much bigger than the native crayfish. They have a bluish-brown coloration, almost a reddish brown and I actually have one in the uh, studio. I say studio, it's my office because my original plan was to actually go out, go by a river, find a crayfish and talk about it but that was going to take up a lot of time and I thought at the end of the day you don't need to learn how to go find crayfish in rivers, it's not that difficult to find them but we want to talk about the nitty gritty of it all so I've just brought one in so I have actually got one sat on my desk. It's a mid-sized adult crayfish crawling around in a tub of water and you might say, hang on a minute, Jack, how come you've got hold of a crayfish? So I was doing a fish survey on the River Mees 
with Staffordshire Wildlife Trust last week. And we were trying to film spined loach, which I won't go on a tangent too much, but they're very interesting fish. And we caught some signal crayfish. And I thought, hang on a minute, rather than uh, dispatching it, and I'll come on to what you do with them after uh, later on, I've took this back to take some pictures of and also uh, keep me company while I'm doing this uh, this podcast. So females can produce anywhere from 200 to 400 eggs per female. Now in the grand scheme of things of invertebrates, that's not that many, but the eggs are relatively big and they're pretty well formed when they come out. So they've got a much higher chance of survival. Now from Basingstoke Canal in 2017, they removed 10 tons of signal crayfish. That is incredible. And closer to home for me, Matt, the river keeper at Chatsworth on the River Derwent in Derbyshire, they reckon they remove anywhere from 25,000 to 30,000 crayfish a year. So these things can proliferate like crazy. They're not particularly fussy in what they eat, whether it's detritus, plant matter, carrion, invertebrates, anything they can get their claws on, they'll have a munch. They're pretty long-lived. They can get up to 20 years old. So you think about it. If a female is breeding every year, that's a lot of eggs coming off her. And they molt once a year, once they turn into adults. I'll come on to why that's important as well later. But essentially, the molting process means they outgrow their skin. So they get under a rock, somewhere they feel safe. They come out of their shell, and they're really soft and squidgy for a few hours. And then they harden over time. Now, how do you tell a signal crayfish from a white claw crayfish or any other crayfish for that matter? Because it's something that increasingly with white claws becoming rarer and rarer, you're more likely to come across a signal. But how are you sure? How are you 100% on IDing them? Well, the first thing to do is check the claws. So with signal crayfish, they have white blobs on the top of their claws. And this is a calcium deposit. And that spreads out through the shell as they grow. And they're the only crayfish in the UK that have that. So white-clawed crayfish will not have that white blob in between the pincers. Wrongly, a lot of people say it's because they've got red under their claws. But white-clawed crayfish can have an orange colour under the claws, which, you know, if on the right day, could look reddish. So don't go by the red on the underside. It's the white blob on the pincers. That's how you know it's definitely uh, a signal crayfish. Now, native crayfish, as I say, they've got more of an orangey white underside under the claws. And the foolproof way is that white clawed crayfish have three little barbs on the side of their body and signals do not. They're completely smooth. So if you run your finger across the side of a crayfish, if you're really not sure, if it's really smooth just behind the eye, it's a signal. If it's got three barbs, it's a white claw. What I would say is if you're not 100%, then don't kill it. It's not worth killing uh, a white claw because there's so few of them. Only dispatch them if you're 100% sure that they are signal crayfish. I remember being on the River Bradford in Derbyshire a few years ago, and I saw this chap with a, a big bucket of crayfish. I said, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I, I watched Countryfile last night. It said crayfish are bad. And I said, what you've got there is a bucket of white-clawed crayfish, which are incredibly rare. And if you kill those, it's an offence. So he didn't realise, and I went through the differences, and he released them in the end. But you can see how the public can very easily get misled with it, because superficially, they are, they are incredibly similar creatures. Now, if you want to sex crayfish, you can sex them. So you've got your crayfish, you turn it on its back, 
and the male crayfish has two L-shaped appendages, and these are sperm transfer organs behind the legs, called claspers. The females have a circular sperm receptacle between the bases of the last two pairs of walking legs. Now, generally, males have larger claws and a tempered tail as well. So they're fairly easy to dimorphosize, uh, telling which species is which. If it wasn't bad enough that we've got one invasive crayfish, the signal, we've actually got six, which I'll go through now very quickly. Now, by far, signal crayfish are the most widespread invasive crayfish in the UK. You get them all the way up in the Scottish Highlands, all the way down to Cornwall. Most counties in the UK have got them in some shape or form, unfortunately. Here's the other species. We've got the narrow-clawed crayfish, or Turkish crayfish, and you find those predominantly in London and a few sites in the Midlands. There's the spiny-cheeked crayfish. These are in London, and they're also actually at my local nature reserve, Attenborough Nature Reserve. No idea how they got to Attenborough Nature Reserve. There are rumours carp anglers put them in, but I do not cannot confirm or deny that. There's noble crayfish, and these are found in Gloucester and Somerset. Interestingly, these are actually a European species. They're not an American species, but they're still not native to the UK. And in fact, they don't overly compete with white-clawed crayfish, but they do quite look like a signal, but without the white patch. So superficially, very, very similar to a signal crayfish, but lacking that white patch. There's the virile crayfish, and you find these in London, and red swamp crayfish, which are also in London, Hampstead Heath. I did a, there's a video on YouTube, if you're interested, that I did a few years ago going after them. And they are just really weird, funky-looking crayfish. This last one, I mean, I've included it. I don't think you'd really see them. But it's called the Red Claw Crayfish. And this is the only crayfish, I believe, that's legal to keep in aquariums in the UK. They don't really survive our winters. So you might find one in the summer, but they would die out in the winter. They're an Australian species. And this is a bonus species I've included which is mitten crabs. They're the only freshwater crab that we get in the UK. They're non-native, they come from China. Interestingly, where mitten crabs establish, they pretty much wipe out non-native crayfish. Mitten crabs are absolute lunatics. They rip them to pieces, but you're just swapping one problem for another. All the problems that signal crayfish do, mitten crabs also do. So you get rid of the crayfish, but you've just got mitten crabs, basically. As a side note, as a side side note, there is one population of non-native white-clawed crayfish in the UK, and that is a population of them in the Highlands. Someone on Twitter um, chucked me this little nugget of information. So, although they are native to England, white-clawed crayfish are not native to Scotland, and there is one population currently in Scottish Highlands. I don't know whereabouts that is. I don't know if it's still going. I don't know what the plans are with them, but there is some there. It's worth noting that all of those species there carry crayfish plague. I'm not sure if mitten crabs can, but certainly all the crayfish species are capable of carrying the plague and transmitting it to white claws. Not only that, they'll outcompete them as well. So wherever you find non-native crayfish, the natives tend to go pretty soon. Which brings me on neatly to what harm do they do? So one of the major problems with signal crayfish, and indeed all those species, is riverbank displacement. When crayfish enter a river, They'll hide under stones or hide under logs, but they'll also bury into banks. And the problem with this is when you've got hundreds, if not thousands of crayfish doing this, banks collapse. Now crayfish, or signal crayfish, create D-shaped burrows. 
and over time this erodes riverbanks. This widens the river which slows it down and pours more mud and silt into the river. This then makes the river more turbid which in turn can stop plant life growing but what it also does is it chokes the gravels. This is very important for fish spawning habitat because it's one of the sort of myths I suppose or it's not really a myth but I can see why people would believe this but signal crayfish are often blamed for eating fish eggs and indeed eating fish. However if you've spent time watching signal crayfish they're slow they're really really slow so how on earth are they going to catch a trout or a little chubbler even small ones they'll bugger off out of the way and when most fish spawn you've got salmonids trout salmon for example that spawn in the winter they spawn in shallow, fast-flowing, gravelly water. In the winter, signal crayfish being cold-blooded are incredibly sluggish. And even in the summer, they don't like fast flows. They struggle going through fast water. So they're not pilfering salmon reds and trout eggs. And in the summer, when you've got species like roach, perch that spawn in weeds, those eggs are off the bottom. So crayfish aren't really damaging fish eggs directly, not themselves, but what they are doing is they're destroying the habitat in which fish spawn. The turbidity is killing off weeds, which is giving less spawning habitat for those spring spawning cyprinids. And in the winter, because those gravels are choked, the salmon and the trout are far less likely to spawn. There's less spawning habitat. Not to mention chub and barbel, which also spawn in the gravel, but they spawn in it in the summer. So it's not that the crayfish are directly eating the eggs, it's that they're physically destroying the river. The problem with this is it's a slow death. It's a death by a thousand cuts because the big adult fish, obviously that's not going to affect them too much. So they keep going, but there's no recruitment. So those big barbel, those big chub, those big perch get bigger and bigger. And as they get bigger, the crayfish end up on the menu. So they're eating crayfish. But as the river's dying, there's not a lot else in there. It's kind of like putting you in a restaurant and saying, you can only eat mixed grills. That's all you can eat. You're going to put weight on. And it's the same with these fish. But the recruitment is not happening. These younger fish are not coming through. And that's what kills the river off slowly. Not to mention the plethora of other problems that our rivers face. The crayfish certainly don't help in that respect. Canal and River Trust spent £250,000 on dredging works on the Kennant and Avon Canal between Hambridge Road and Bulls Lock. That is a lot of money to spend, particularly for a charity, on few crayfish digging holes in the bank. They do prey on native wildlife, it's just whatever they can catch. Now I spoke to Stuart Crofts, who is Mr Riverfly. I'm not sure if that podcast will be out before this or after, but we do talk about crayfish in that one. And he was mentioning that for a lot of the species that can get out of the way, the mayfly larvae, uh, the bullheads, things like that, they just bugger off. They clear away from the crayfish. It's the stuff that can't get away from them, the worms, the snails, the caddisfly larvae. Crayfish definitely have an impact on the riverfly life in that way. But the riverflies and fish that they can't directly eat, they're choking through habitat transformation. So they are a massive problem once they get into the rivers in that way. Not to mention the thing that they're perhaps best known for, which is crayfish plague. Now, it's not actually a virus, it's a fungus. 
and most of the non-native crayfish, it's not fatal. They can carry it, it won't kill them. With the white-clawed crayfish, it's almost 100% lethal. I'm going to talk about some science with that in a second as to why it's not 100, 100%, but it's very, very lethal generally if they get it. Now, in the 1870s, crayfish plague was introduced to the Po Valley in Italy from a ship's ballast tank from North America. The plague then spreads through Europe. In the 1900s, traditionally harvested populations of noble crayfish crash in Sweden. So this was that other European species I was talked about due to crayfish plague. In 1959, they then took signal crayfish from California to Sweden because this historically very valuable resource of crayfish are gone, so they wanted another crayfish to replace that, and that's where the signals come in, as they grow much quicker and get bigger than the native crayfish. In 1976, they were introduced from Sweden to Riversdale Farm in Dorset, and by 1980, at least 250 farms in Britain had received juveniles. So in a very short space of time, they were pretty widespread, and almost instantly escaped into the wild. It was not long before they got out. Now, the reason that we imported them in the first place was because in the 1970s, farming was experiencing a mini crisis, and the government was encouraging farmers to diversify and try out new ideas and ways to earn extra cash. And one of these was crayfish farming. Now, the crayfish market then was very lucrative, particularly in Scandinavia, but also huge exports to France and Germany. So MAF, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, a precursor to the current DEFRA, was encouraging farmers to get these signal crayfish as a way of earning a little bit of extra cash. So like most things in life, you can blame the government for these crayfish. Essentially, it's all their fault that we've got these signal crayfish here. And I actually have a leaflet, the original 1976 leaflet that the government sent out to encourage farmers to have these crayfish. The idea that they had a little farm pond or maybe a little stream on their land and you can just bung some of these crayfish in and then you can harvest them at your own leisure. What could go wrong? I say sarcastically. Although many of the releases were legal, many of them were also illegal. So some of these crayfish were just dumped into nearby rivers. If the farmer or whoever dumped them didn't have a water body that was their own, they could just dump them in a nearby river and harvest at their own leisure. These things are very good at spreading on their own steam. They can move over land up to a kilometre overnight. So even things like weirs and barriers do not necessarily stop them. They'll just get out and walk around or if it's a wet meadow or somewhere like that, they'll just get out and move to nearby watercourses. I think it's worth mentioning that anglers will take the... I think it's worth mentioning that anglers are going to have to take some of the blame here, because there's definitely parts of the country and lakes where people have introduced crayfish on the false belief that it will bump up the weight of fish. You might get short-term gains, but as I mentioned earlier, you're going to lose all your juvenile fish. So it's not really a good idea to introduce crayfish for the idea of fish eating them. If you've got an 8-inch male crayfish, not a lot's eating that. There's no fish in the UK. I mean, I guess a catfish, but you don't really want catfish in your water either. That can eat that. They're an absolute tank. 
So they're only going to be eating the small ones. And there is some debate on how much of that diet makes up. I mean, a lot of these places where these fish are getting very fat are also very heavily fished. And you could argue that if you did an analysis of those fish's droppings, a lot of it would probably be boilies and pellets. Uh, crayfish will be in there as well, but I think people overstate the relevance of how much of a diet crayfish make on these fish. But anglers definitely have spread them around. There are some carp lakes and whatever where crayfish have been introduced, but it's proving that again. I, mean, I think I've seen it on forums and stuff, but that's all just uh, online bollocks and chat, isn't it, generally? Now, in terms of habitat, they're not too fussy. They don't particularly like fast-moving rivers. So you find that a lot of spate rivers, they just can't take hold like they do on canals, large lakes, slow-moving rivers. A river that I've visited a lot over the years is the River Team near Worcester. And it's an amazing river. It's got some real power to it. There's parts of that river that I would not wade in. That's very rare for me, but it's just got too much power. I didn't do it. So I didn't think there were signal crayfish in there. I assumed that it's just too fast for them. And then I found a crayfish pot one day, lifted it out, it was an illegal one, didn't have a number on it, and there was a crayfish in there, but it was in a bit of an eddy. So even in rivers that are really, really powerful, they'll get a bit of a foothold. They'll find those deeper areas, those little eddies, and they'll eke out a living there. They won't necessarily be in high numbers like they would be on the slower moving rivers, but they will kind of niche their way in as and where they can. So the million dollar question, how do you eradicate signal crayfish? I'm gonna go through some of the methods that have been suggested and how successful they've been. Large scale removals of signal crayfish were trialed in Spain and indeed here in the UK. And the results ended up with a higher biomass of crayfish. So generally speaking, where you trap crayfish you tend to target the larger ones. You're getting the big crayfish. You're not getting the smaller ones. And in some cases, 90% of the crayfish were left behind. On places where they do trap crayfish, you might notice numbers go down in the short term, but you'd have to keep it up constantly and be relentless with it. And even then, you're never gonna get them all. The trouble is, crayfish are self-regulating. So the large male signal crayfish are cannibalistic. They eat smaller ones and they also hold territories which means that they're not too concentrated. Now when you trap you generally target these large territorial cannibalistic males. So by removing one large crayfish you're allowing say a dozen, 20, 30 smaller crayfish to move in. What's going to cause more damage? One large crayfish or a couple dozen smaller crayfish? I don't know, I'll let the scientists work that out, but I would have my money on it that the larger numbers are gonna be the problem. So it's well established now in more recent methods that trapping crayfish, although it makes sense on paper, does not actually help and get rid of signal crayfish from rivers for good. There was a big craze in the mid noughties to kind of eat the crayfish uh, to beat them. Eat to beat, that was the slogan, I couldn't remember it. But again, it just doesn't work. You I mean, you can eat signal crayfish. They're very tasty. I have eaten signal crayfish. I've also eaten, I don't know which species it was. I, I had a, a Zander and crayfish paella in, in Germany randomly, but it was very nice. I don't know what species of crayfish it was. It wasn't signal. It was one of the other ones, I think. So they do taste good. I would point out that the state of rivers currently, I'm not sure I'd want to eat crayfish from most of our rivers. They're going to mainly be made up of 
plutonium turds and god knows what else so eating them is probably not the solution either. The Environment Agency did a study also and their conclusion was very similar that leaving signals to self-regulate through cannibalism was the most effective strategy. So that's not very reassuring because it means you can trap them but you're not really uh, solving the problem. The other trouble with trapping is you are kind of encouraging crayfish to be there. If people trap crayfish and sell them for food they're not going to want to give up that line of business or income. It also is relatively easy to buy crayfish traps online. You can just go on Amazon, you can buy a dedicated crayfish trap and you can then remove crayfish for the pot. Uh, I should also add you need a license to do this legally but a lot of people do it illegally and then they get moved around very easily. And this is where biosecurity is incredibly important. You need to be so aware that you're checking your gear. If you're a kayaker, if you're a angler, if you're a boat user, you need to be so careful from when you go from one waterway to another so not to transport crayfish or crayfish plague. And the adage is check, clean, dry. If you do that, you're gonna drastically reduce the risk. We're at the point now where it's really more about prevention than cure. If we can stop signal crayfish spreading to more waterways, that is the dream. For the most part, where they're established, there is no immediate solution as of yet. One thing that was trialed was castration of male crayfish. So you get these large cannibalistic territorial males that I mentioned, and you remove those sperm claspers that we mentioned how you ID them. You cut them off. Signal crayfish are an invertebrate. They have a very simple nervous system, so they don't feel the pain quite in the same way that me and you do. So you remove those. And what that means is that anywhere from 80 to 40% less likely to breed. So those big males, they still try it on with the females, but they're far less likely to succeed in spawning. But those big ones are still eating all of the little ones. They can regrow those claspers. That's how hardcore these fuckers are. They can regrow limbs. So you do have to recapture them and keep removing those sperm claspers. That's one way that's been trialled and the results are somewhat promising for that. Now one option is to use chemicals. The Highland Council removed crayfish from a quarry pond using Plyblast. Now with a biocide treatment, if the area is under 2.5 hectares or the short length of a watercourse, this can work. E.g. it might be a section of canal or a very short section of stream. This was trialled and in 13 sites identified, six were treated and three of them completely got rid of the crayfish. However, this is incredibly size dependent. You can't do this on somewhere, say, like Rutland Water, which has signal crayfish. It's too big. It's not going to work there. Or a river like the Trent or the Thames. So on small watercourses, you can use chemicals to remove the signal crayfish. Although this is seen as a, a rather extreme method, but indeed it is a method that works on smaller waterways. In some cases, draining the river, the pond or the lake have been trialled. But again, how do you be 100% sure that you've got every single crayfish? You literally would have to turn over every single stone. And if you only leave a couple, you're back to square one. So it's an extreme method, but doesn't really secure results. Another one was creating barriers, which in my eyes is a little bit stupid. We've got plenty of barriers on our rivers as it is. Indeed, one of the few upsides 
of the amount of barriers to migration to fish on rivers is the fact that it does slow down signal crayfish. Doesn't completely stop them as they can just get up and walk around. But when you've got a large weir, it does stop the signals getting further upstream as quick. It does halt them somewhat. So are there any kind of natural ways to deal with signal crayfish or indeed is nature finding a way? Well, sort of. One of the main predators of signal crayfish in the UK at the moment are otters. There are a lot more otters now than there were in the 1970s and otters certainly switch on to signal crayfish. If you have got a river that's got signal crayfish and otters, I guarantee you if you go and find an otter spray, there will be crayfish shells in it. If you consider for a moment that you're an otter and you're swimming along the river and you're trying to catch a trout, a beautiful two pound brown trout, it's fast, it's quick, it's outpacing you. You've got to expend a lot of energy to try and catch that trout. You then glance to the bottom of the riverbed and you see this big fat fuck off crayfish and you think, I'm having you, you bastard. It's slow moving and it's full of protein. Now, when you think, right, what am I going to go catch next? Am I going to try and chase that trout again? Or am I going to find this big bastard's friend and eat a few of them? So otters can get very prey specific. That's not to say that they'll only eat crayfish, but they'll certainly switch on to an available and ready food source. So otters will certainly control larger crayfish. And they're pretty much the only predator in the UK that will regularly and routinely tackle large crayfish. So what about the smaller ones? Well, certainly perch will eat them, chub will eat them, and barbel will eat them. How much of their diet is made up of crayfish? I couldn't tell you. But where crayfish are established, often those fish do get bigger. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, one of the natural predators of crayfish is the eel. And we all know that historically, we've had a 90% drop in eel numbers in the last 50 to 60 years. So with less eels eating crayfish and this new crayfish species moving in, there's going to be a correlation there. There was a trial in Lincolnshire in 2019 and they released hundreds and hundreds of thousands of glass eels into um, the Lincolnshire fens. And the idea is that when these glass eels grow, they should hopefully drastically take down the number of crayfish. This has also been done in France and Spain and it is suggested that it's working well again in small watercourses. If you think about it, when you've got chub, when you've got barbel, when you've got perch, yes they will eat small crayfish out in the open but how are they getting to crayfish that are hid under rocks, those smaller ones? They've got no way of getting to them. The eel on the other hand is an expert at digging in and finding those hidden crayfish. So eels will be accessing small crayfish that no other predator will be touching. So it's hoped that if we increase the number of eels, which as I say are critically endangered as it is, this could be one way to probably not eradicate them, but certainly keep the numbers of crayfish down to a more manageable and sustainable way. And like most of these podcasts, I try and sneak in a burbot reference Burbot also predate crayfish. Burbot are a benthic predator. They spend most of their time on the riverbed. The species that we have in Western Europe, or the strain I should say, uh, gets to around about three to maybe eight pounds. So they can munch some serious crayfish. And they've been finding in places like Germany and in Belgium, 
that these berber are feeding on signal crayfish and if they were in higher numbers could also be a natural solution to help control the number of signal crayfish. These non-native crayfish, apart from the harm to the environment, also cause economic damage. If you think about the increased maintenance costs on rivers and also the loss of angling tourism, for example, in Scotland, salmon fishing brings in 800 million pounds per year and roughly two new sites with signal crayfish are discovered annually. This is a huge impact to the economy if these species start to peripherate anymore in areas where they're not already found. So it's looking pretty bleak, isn't it? Well, maybe not. They are trialing gene splicing. It's all getting very sci-fi and Star Trek-y now, isn't it? But what this basically does is you alter the genes of some of these crayfish and it makes all the offspring female and sterile. So eventually, once you release these into the environment, they breed themselves to extinction. Is that the way to go? I don't know. But it's one possible solution and they are trialing it with grey squirrels currently. As I mentioned, nature can find a way. On the River Itchen, they have found that there are white-clawed crayfish which are becoming resistant to the crayfish plague as there are signals up and downstream of them, the University of Southampton have found. This is also the case in a population in Spain where one population of white-clawed crayfish is now resistant to one strain of crayfish plague. So given time, they can fight back. The question is, do they have enough time to do so? To throw another spanner in the works, I was recently reading Wilding by Isabella Tree. It's a fantastic book. And to quote one of the passages, the American signal crayfish introduced in 1976 is denigrated for outcompeting our native white-clawed crayfish, even though there were already five other non-native crayfish in our river systems when it arrived. And our, quotes native itself was, genetic analysis has now shown, most probably introduced from Europe in the 1500s. So I found that really interesting because I didn't realise that potentially white claws aren't even native to the UK. And if that's true, I did try and look online. I couldn't find any evidence of that quote, but I'm assuming that she's not just pulled that out of thin air. That means that white-clawed crayfish have been in the UK for the same amount of time as carp have. And we don't class carp as a native species. So it's food for thought, isn't it? Maybe in 500 years time, we'll class signal crayfish as a native. So what do you do if you come across a signal crayfish? Well, it's best to contact whoever owns the river or the land. If it's a wildlife trust reserve, maybe an angling club on the river, just to let them know. It's all too easy to assume that they already know those crayfish are there. But if it's a new population popping up, then you might be able to take action to remove them before they get too deeply embedded. If you catch a crayfish, maybe you're an angler, maybe you're pond dipping, whatever, what do you do with it? Well, legally, you're not meant to return it. The quickest and easiest way is to step on them. And I know that might sound a bit uh, distasteful, but just bear in mind, they've got very simple nervous systems, a quick crunch uh, to the head, and it's all over. You could, if you were really bothered, you could take them home and put them in the freezer. And that might be potentially classed as a little bit more humane. But for the sake of ease, let's say you're fishing and you catch 30 of these bloody things. Are you going to take 30 crayfish home and put them in your freezer? 
Probably not. So the simplest way is just to crunch them. Might sound a bit cruel, but it's the quickest way to dispatch them. In the grand scheme of things, killing a handful of crayfish is probably not going to make a difference to the wider river, but certainly if I come across signals, then uh, they get a crunching, which is the kind of quickest and easiest way to get rid of them. So there you have it, plenty of information on signal crayfish. But to summarise, for the most part, once signal crayfish get entrenched in a waterway, that's pretty much it. There may be steps that you can take to eradicate them if you act early or the watercourse is small, but chances are, once they proliferate, there's not a lot you can do about it, and it's more a case of managing those crayfish to keep the numbers lower down. Whether that is through natural predation and encouraging natural predation or some other method. There is hope that potentially white clawed crayfish might build up an immunity, although that doesn't stop what signal crayfish outcompeting them. But this new gene splicing may open hidden doorways into getting rid of this non native invader. So I hope you've enjoyed today's subject. I don't know when the, the next one, the predation one's going to be out. It'll be some point in the future, and I'll be interviewing people like the Angling Trust and, say, the UK Otter Trust, just to kind of get both sides of the story, and then I'll let the, the listeners decide because, yeah, it's a whole debate that I don't really want to kind of get embroiled in, but I think that there's a lot of misinformation on both sides, and it would be good to kind of quote some science and some papers just to put the facts straight. Speaking of which... If you do want to carry on reading and you want to kind of see any of the information that I've quoted in this podcast, if you look in the description, there'll be links to papers which go into far more detail about some of the things that I've talked about. Now, last week I mentioned that I would bring out five podcasts that I enjoyed recording. And these might be not necessarily the most listened to podcasts that I've done, but they're the ones that I enjoy doing. So I feel like If you've only listened to some of the more recent podcasts, some of these are older ones, and I'd recommend that you go back and give them a listen. So I'm only going to go through five because we could be here all day otherwise. But if I was going to recommend five previous podcasts for you to go and listen that I enjoy doing, then number one would be Cats Are Cunts, which (laughs) got a bit of a uh, prickly reception. I am going to do a sequel. I keep talking about it. I will bring that out. And in essence, it's basically how cats came into my back garden in the house that I moved in at the time and were just absolute thugs and I talk about ways in terms of how to try and discourage cats some of the myths and all the stuff about that and 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 how I got on basically but it was a good one because it definitely generated some discussion a lot of people uh, have listened to that podcast and, and mentioned it so cats are cunts it was a quite an old episode if I remember correctly it was, oh no, it's labelled as a bonus episode, so I don't know what number it is, but it's a fair way back. If you go searching for that, then you can find it on there. Now, another one that I did was with Nina Constable. She's an amazing camera woman, and she basically does everything herself. So she presents in front of camera, she does a lot of filmmaking, she does editing, she's a one-woman band, and she does some absolutely amazing work in the natural history sector. I've worked with Nina a couple of times, she's a lovely individual, And that was a great chance to talk to her. And that's another one of the earlier podcasts. It was number 28, I think, of the podcasts that we did. Now, more recently, I've tried to try and get passionate people rather than names. And some of the earlier episodes, I ended up getting friends on. And one of them was Dan Rushton. Dan is a wildlife photographer based in Dorset. 
and we have a little chat in his living room about why field craft is key for wildlife photography. We have a good old chat, me and Dan, a good old heart to heart uh, about what annoys us in wildlife photography. And he's an absolute legend, really enjoyed that chat. I talked to Sally LePage, who is a well-known science YouTuber. We talk about the world of science YouTube, how to make those videos, but we also talk about diversity in wildlife TV and some of the uncomfortable truths around that. And she even schools me on the podcast saying that I could do better, which is something I'm trying to do better, um, but maybe could do a little bit more on that front as well. Sometimes podcasts take you by surprise as well. So you might have someone on who you're not expecting to be that interesting, which I know sounds a bit mean, but they take you by complete surprise. And one such podcast was with Back From The Brink. So they asked to come on the podcast. Now, as a rule of thumb, if somebody asks to come on the podcast, I don't have them on because it's generally just people glory hunting or they just want to promote something. They're not really interested in talking to you. However, I wanted to talk to Back To The Brink anyway. So I had them on and they had a guy called James Harding Murray? Morris. James Harding Morris was his name. And he was fantastic. He was so interesting to talk to. And he was really keen on moths. And he was an absolute breath of fresh air as we chatted to each other about some of these uh, animals they're trying to bring back. Because back from the brink, particularly trying to bring invertebrates back, not necessarily charismatic megafauna. So there are a few podcasts I'd recommend that you go back. But obviously, if you are a new listener, there's over, what, 130 podcasts now? Go back and listen to some of the old ones because there's some real gems there. And I feel like they're not getting the love that they fully deserve. Now, this podcast is coming out just before Christmas. So I would like to wish all the listeners a Merry Christmas. I really appreciate you tuning in. It's so lovely to get messages from you all that you enjoy the pod. I hope you have a wonderful time over the Christmas period. And I'll see you next week. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been Jack Perks. And I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers.